From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Yuli Zhang. This is Film Club, a podcast series where our youth film critics and cultural connoisseurs spill the theoretical tea on a new movie. So these are spoiler-filled conversations. If you haven't seen the movie they're talking about, be prepared to learn far more about them than the trailers will tell you. Back in 1999, American pop culture was forever changed with the release of The Matrix. Since then, countless references to the movie have been made in other films, TV shows, and day-to-day conversations. The two sequels that came out in 2003 were less impactful, but didn't disrupt The Matrix's influence. Now, almost 20 years later, the franchise continues with The Matrix Resurrections, bringing back Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss playing their iconic roles of Neo and Trinity. Our At Me Youth producers got together virtually to discuss the movie, how it compares to the first three entries, its divisive response from fans, and its meta commentary on its own place in pop culture. Just a heads up, though. There were some internet issues during the recording, so please bear that in mind when you hear the audio. Think of it as glitches in the Matrix. Here is a discussion led by AtMe producer Kendrick Whiteman. Welcome everyone to the Matrix Resurrections Film Roundtable.、Uh, my name is Kendrick Whiteman, and would everyone、uh, introduce themselves? Yeah, I'm Zen Rogers, and I'm Ormond Zalois. Well, I think the film we're talking about today has an,、um, received an extremely,、um, well, what you would call a mixed reception. I, I've watched this movie twice, and I may as go as far to even say it was my favorite film of last year, despite the fact that we've seen, I'm sure, so many amazing films last year. It can be considered exciting, thought-provoking, culturally relevant, funny, a good commentary, whatever. Considering how Split the initial reactions were. I'm wondering, what what were your thoughts coming out of the movie? Yeah, I also enjoyed it quite a bit. As a longtime fan of the Matrix series, I think it was a worthy addition to the series. I'm not going to go as far as to say it was my favorite of last year, but it's certainly you know in my top top list. So definitely a fan. And I had heard of the Matrix, even seen a bunch of parodies of it, but I had never truly seen a Matrix movie until the Matrix Resurrections. And I gotta say, it's a pretty good introduction to the Matrix series. And it looks like people online seem to agree on that point. Well, I'm glad to hear that you guys liked it because、um, before the roundtable, I was going along. Well, just Rotten Tomatoes, but I was looking at some of the critics' reviews, and it was pretty poorly received. I, I think. Yeah, I definitely have seen divisive opinions. It's even appeared on some worst lists that I've seen. People calling it one of the worst movies of the year. Yeah, people saying like, and not even that the film is bad, but they don't like not just the story, but the technical aspect, which I think is just mind-boggling. It had some of the best like fight scenes. The action was all there. It had some like amazing like chase sequences. It was. It, even if you don't like the story or were never particularly invested in the Matrix lore. It is undeniably an enthralling film, but、um, I, I guess some people seem to disagree with that. For me, I definitely think it's enjoyable to watch、uh, all the action, like you said. I definitely think action-wise, it doesn't have the same energy that the first one did. It's just it's a bit clunkier. The sh- it's not as shot as clearly, but I not to say that it wasn't good. I still enjoyed it. Definitely, I think a lot of people were in the mindset that it's been you know 15 years. It has to be as good as the first one. When the first one is one of the greatest action movies ever made, so that's a hard bargain to 
have for any any movie. I mean, that, that's almost like an impossible standard to live up to is the pure excitement that the first one brings to the table. Like no other movie. <laughs> uh, and besides a lot of green screening, of course, but most of the original Matrix was like practical. Yeah, almost all the stunt work, as far as I'm aware, was done practically. I mean, you see the behind the scenes with Carrie Ann Moss and Keanu Reeves. They really were doing all those martial arts and spent uh, months and months training for it. Yeah, they were like blowing up pillars and like destroying physical sets. Yeah, they really built a lot of the sets. I, I could hardly even imagine how expensive that was. And I think the lobby sequence in particular that only lasts three minutes at the most. Yeah. An entire few days of production to do, which for a movie is astonishing because they usually just try to knock out scenes as fast as they can, but considering how much there was setting it up and doing it right. And <laughs> there's this infamous clip, it's pretty hilarious, of uh, Keanu Reeves uh, slipping and falling during his performance, which you could imagine only cost him like a million dollars. Yeah, little, a li one little mistake that can ruin the entire, <laughs> the entire shooting day is... Definitely, I can imagine the stress of that, especially for such new, new directors at the time as the Wachowskis. But were they new directors at the time? Compared to now, yes. And considering the trust that was given to them for those films, yes. Uh, I think they, they must have had a lot of faith in it because they, not only did it have a budget of, I believe, $120 million, it had some big stars in it. Oh, yeah. The Keanu Reeves was at his peak. Yeah, that was like around the time he was doing some of his most popular work, like post Point Break, I believe. Yeah, it was post Point Break. It was like two years after my own private Idaho. So he was he was at the peak of his career. And so the fact that they got him for a quite experimental sci-fi, mind-melting, whatever, it was, um, I, I would believe it's just truly an achievement of filming. Yeah, no, for sure that. The studios don't really take risks like that very often. So I'm glad they do when they do. <laughs> It was definitely one of the most important movies. Even like today, it's still widely referenced. For sure, it's unbelievably influential, yeah. So with The Matrix Resurrections, just, it had an unbelievable standard to live up to. And what I think a lot of people didn't like about the movie was that it tried to fit all of this, it just tried to fit so much into the span of the original. It had so much it was glossing over, like uh, there's so many themes. So many like culturally relevant themes today, in particular with the media, even just living down to the lives we live, which I wasn't expecting a sequel to one of the most groundbreaking films to actually live up to the first one in terms of um, scale. It even had to not just build on the scale of the, the world, but also the legacy of the first three movies as well. So that's to contend with the world that was already built and all that's already been developed in that as well as, in a meta sense, the legacy of the films. Yeah, and um, I think what a lot of people, especially for our audiences today, you don't see a lot of two and a half hour movies that do too successful, unless, of course, they're involving uh, familiar properties, and familiar characters, which The Matrix did have available to it. But the thing was, is that just the idea of making a Matrix sequel is like damn near blast because the first original trilogy is so solid by itself that people, I think we're automatically just prone to disliking this movie because, well, it didn't really need to exist, you know? Yeah, and I think the film honestly contends with that in an interesting way. 
where it talks about how Lana Wachowski didn't want to make it, but Warner Bros. was going to make it anyway. And so she decided, I have to make it. No one else really can. And so it has that whole, why is the Matrix back? What, what, what is the point of this? We planned for it to be just a trilogy, but now it has to be a four, like a quadrilogy. So it has all of those themes, I think, present within the script. I find that people still complain about that. But I think just the level of self-awareness the Matrix Resurrection bringing to the table is something we've yet to see in a sequel. It's like the original Matrix is meta on a level that we could all possibly be living live, unknowing to the horrors that go on around it. But it, it evolves beyond that because just the fact that it exists and talks about the fact that it exists, I think, is a statement. And a statement, of course, that a studio was going to pay for and was going to do either way, whether or not, well, no matter what the content of the film was. I think it was um, a film that needed to be made. I think it uh, brings a lot of stuff to the table that we haven't heard before. I definitely agree. The fact that Lana Wachowski was able to be given as much creative freedom as she got on this, to have directors get that with a blockbuster of this size is so rare these days with Kevin Feige controlling all of how Marvel works and these superhero blockbusters, which can be good in their own right, but they're very controlled, they're very formulaic, and to have something that really breaks free of that, like a breath of fresh air in the blockbuster scene. It is indeed very unusual because, again, this is nothing we've ever seen before. What I thought was hilarious is that the Matrix exists in this universe. Yeah, that is a game that Neo designed, yeah. <laughs> I, I, that's amazing, isn't it? And it really allows for that whole meta commentary where they, and I love how they actually name drop Warner Bros and then just proceed to roast them for like 10 minutes. <laughs> when I heard Warner Bros, when I heard them say that, I was, I was honestly in shock. I was like, did, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, you never, you never see that, especially with movies that have this big of a budget. It's... It, it felt like uh, they were talking directly to the audience. My parents and I, when we finished watching this, I asked why uh, Revolutions, the third one, wasn't as good a score on different movie sites. And I was told because that movie and this one, to an extent, was about the real world, not about the Matrix. And that people liked the Matrix more than they liked scenes about the real world. I don't understand that at all. Because, for one thing, the real world, I think it's supposed to not be as active. It's more slowed down compared to the Matrix. But also... I like that. I like having a little balance, a little yin to my yang, that kind of thing. I think it's a good combination of good and evil. It's a, it's a great way of discovering who's in charge, the, the codes that are alluded to throughout the movie. It's, it's amazing to me. In, in fact, and I'm going to close that by saying that I find it very funny that they are working on a, a video game in the Matrix when the uh, actual games about the Matrix don't seem to look very good. No, they don't. I, I do agree with that. And like you said, having a little yin to your yang, the first Matrix is an extremely exciting movie. That's just undeniable. But the fact that this new film throws us directly into, well, the first Matrix, uh, giving audiences probably what they haven't seen in almost 20 years, which could see, be seen as a little unnecessary, but I thought was just a good, I, I thought it fit very well. Because right after we go into the Matrix, just like in the real movie, 
we come out of Neo's computer, and then we're introduced to the real world. But in the original Matrix, we're thrown into the Matrix, and it has the same green tint, the same like kind of dramatic lighting. But how the new one subverts that is when we come out of Neo's computer, he's making the Matrix. It's like he's not that he's making it, but he's like using Matrix code, you know. And we see for the first time, I think, not necessarily the first time, the real world. We see the characters in the setting without that iconic green tint. And it was truly an amazing moment because from there on, I did not know where the film was going to go. And everything that happened from that point was honestly taking me by surprise every step of the way. And it may not have been as action-packed or as exciting as the first one, but it gives us more time to like slip ourselves into Keanu's shoes. I think the film is too self-aware that I'm more seeing Keanu Reeves not wanting to reprise his role as Neo at more than we're seeing the initial Neo that we're used to in the first one, you know? It works on such a meta level. Again, it, it, the film knows that it shouldn't exist, but it just does. And what it does with the fact that it shouldn't exist but wants to still say something and have the impact the first one did, I think is honestly amazing. Well, that leads me to my next question, actually. Do you think this film should have even been made in the first place? Yes, but I think both the Wachowski sisters should have been involved. You know, I agree on that. The other one didn't want to do it right. Yeah, Lily didn't want to be involved. But that's mostly because she's pretty much left the film world at this point. She didn't do season two of Sense8 either, which was the show that they had made a few years ago. I, I think the Matrix universe would have been just fine, left untouched. I believe with the original trilogy, ending with, um, well, spoiler alert for the original Matrix, as you, you have no excuse to not watch that by this point. But um, <laughs> Neo sacrificing himself to save the people of Zion, correct? Yeah, drives into the machine city. Yeah, the build up to that. And like, I think that was the whole point of the story all along, in a sense. But it was a complete story on its own. And again, the fact that they were going to make this film either way and that Lana chose to step in. Yeah, I, I'm with you in that. I think that it had, there was kind of a perfect ending at the end of The Matrix 3, The Matrix Revolutions, where it, it was the perfect ending to the trilogy. Uh, Lily and Lana had planned for it to just be a trilogy initially. But now that the, it's kind of, I actually feel similarly to the Matrix films now that I do the Toy Story films, which is a funny uh, connection, I guess, but where I didn't think that the fourth one should happen until after I saw it and realized that it really fit the context of the series well and that it reoriented whose story it was about. So in the Matrix 4, I think it's very interesting how the story is no longer about Neo as much as it is about the Matrix and the meta sense and also about Trinity and her legacy. Yeah, I, I, I imagine what they were doing in the writing time was subverting the expectations of what we wanted, or not necessarily what we wanted or didn't want, but what we expected. And I have to admit, they got me, for sure. I could not see a lot of things coming. It intentionally holds back on giving us most of the nostalgia we want. It gives us something else. It gives like an almost self-aware, slightly obnoxious, cutting back to the original movie. And I'm sure it can be explained as how it would be necessary to the plot. But I think it was to show the audience that they're evolving from that, that they're going past the like, well, as the new Morpheus character puts it, uh, the actor. 
And that's another thing. They, uh, I, I'm not sure what his stance was on it, but well, what the, the studio stance was on it, but bringing back the Morpheus character without Lawrence Fishburne. It didn't feel right, didn't it? No, it didn't. It felt very weird, especially archive footage from the first movies with Lawrence Fishburne in it and then Morpheus, the other guys, in front of all that. Yeah, and it's what I think a lot of people didn't like is that Morpheus was one of the coolest characters of the original movie. And, well, he didn't reprise his role in that. I think our only other option would be have no Morpheus character at all. But then how they worked around it is the character that they gave us was not, it was not Morpheus. And it wasn't supposed to be. It was a new character, a program code between the original Morpheus and Agent Smith. But he acts differently. Like when he's in the, um, it's my mind slipping me. What is that white space called? I also cannot remember for the life of me right now. <laughs> but he's like acting differently in that space. You know, he's not being as calm and composed. And when we see him, when he brings Neo there, he's getting drunk. He's like stumbling around and having fun and challenging Neo in a different way that the original Morpheus character did. And I just thought that was the only way I could describe it is surreal. And I think that's what a lot of the movie delivers is just surrealism. This is just a question I was curious on asking you guys. What did you guys think of the style of the film visually and like with the, I don't know, this new world that we're putting into? To be honest, that uh, the style of the new one was one of the things that I had the most trouble with. Just because I'm such a fan of the silicon trench coats and the green and the style of the original trilogy and this stark departure from it, I wasn't as huge of a fan of, but I, I grew to accept it. <laughs> it kind of bothered me at first because I was like, this doesn't look like the Matrix. It looks like a video game, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I like the analyst's style, but I hate the analyst because there's a lot of buildup towards the action, but then the rest of it's just suspense. And even not even suspense, but the scenes with the analyst have such contrast to the fight scenes that it's really intimidating. And that's how I feel about the style. The style's good, but you only see the style most in the fight scenes in here. I think there's a good amount of fight scenes in this movie, but they're spaced very far apart. Oh, yeah. I, I think the pacing was almost frustrating. I was pretty tired the first time I saw it, and I, the person I was, I was with, my brother, he actually fell asleep. I mean, fair enough, but it's like the movie has a lot between its climactic moments. And it's very exposition-heavy, too. Lots of explain, explaining lore and yes. stuff that's happening. Uh, that was definitely one of the most unpleasant parts is that it suffered from what I like to, it, what a lot of movies suffer from, uh, talking heads and where it's just, you see a bunch of talking heads talking and explaining it, the whole thing, the whole plot to each other, but in movies you're really supposed to see what's happening. And The Matrix does deliver on that on a lot of levels. It has some great montage sequences, in particular the one where um, Mr. Anderson is going through his uh, everyday life taking his blue pill, going to work, working out the same gym, seeing the same birds flying sky, you know. And those were some of the strongest moments, like the scene where they're explaining that they're going to make a new Matrix with or without us. It feels like those scenes are just there for the audience. I mean, it works. I wish that there was more show and less tell, for sure. 
Yes, that was definitely one of the problems and a problem that the original Matrix didn't really suffer from. Sure, it had exposition, but it, what they had, uh, what they call in screenwriting books, the Pope and the Pool. Characters can be explaining something to the audience, but they do it in a more interesting manner. But like with scenes with the analyst, for example, most of our scenes with him, he's just kind of talking to Neo and explaining a lot. And I find myself thinking to myself, why is he explaining this to Neo? You know, it's the old James Bond villain purely de describing his master plan. James Bond, while he's on the table and the saw's coming up. Yeah, I, I'm a person who thinks most movies are too long, and that you should really just cut to the essential stuff. And this movie, its biggest problem was, like you said, it did not cut out a lot of the non-essentials. There was a lot of fluff. Broad question. What did you think this film was about? I think it was about a lot, a lot of different things, but namely uh, legacy and what, what it means to exist in the Matrix as it was established in the Matrix series of films. I think the Matrix, at least this one, this Matrix movie in particular, is the embodiment of the figure of speech with great power comes great responsibility. And you know, some of the characters in the movies have a lot of power and not a lot of responsibility. You could say Keanu Reeves in this movie, in the first movies, he had power and responsibility, but then he gave that up for a sense of false peace and security in the Matrix while he was developing games with Agent Smith, who is also someone, a great example of someone who has a lot of power, but no responsibility, no remorse. And that's what I think this is about. I think it's teaching, in a sense, that you have to balance your power with responsibility and, and with using your powers wisely, no matter what powers you may or may not have. I, I agree with both of those, but it did feel like a movie that was aware of the fact that it didn't need to exist and wanted to comment on that. So it operated as a good commentary on the whole studio system and the, just the studio way of making movies that even if a movie doesn't need to exist, that they're probably going to make it anyway. And I did think that was what your point was interesting. I never really saw that uh, with uh, having that power and choosing the responsibility to do with it. Because that, thinking about it, that was one of the main themes of the first one. Um, Neo was the one. Exactly. And you could even argue the, the false sense of security is the blue pill. And the power is the red pill, but Morpheus never hands Neo responsibility. He has to learn that on his own, especially when he's holding his own against Agent Smith. Yeah, it's the whole, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, you know. It has, it, it, it's like um, giving Neo the option. You can choose a life of comfort, or you can choose a life of freedom. And I think that's an important choice that, needs to be asked of every individual, especially when it comes to where they're like, in particular with the US, like just the United States, is what should we prioritize as the people? Should it be our comfort or should it be our freedom? I, I, I feel like that was a very challenging question and what made the original movie quite a shock to people. Because that was a question that's never really been asked of them. And I'm sure if they have, it would be something they wouldn't take seriously. But the great thing about the fantasy genre, and to a greater extent science fiction, is we can show our world in different worlds. 
And I think it's easier for people to process those ideas when they see it happen to someone, someone like when they see it worse happening to someone else somewhere else, and then they connect to it on a different level because you can't necessarily tell people how to feel, but you can show them how certain things would probably make them feel or how certain situations would affect them personally, you know? And I think that's why The Matrix is so culturally relevant today is because it's a challenging movie. It challenges the audience and says, what if your whole life is a lie? What if everything you've known is meticulously set up to keep you where you're at? And I'm sure that's a theme that's been touched on before in movies, but not on a scale as The Matrix, not as effective as The Matrix, because it's thrilling. It's just a great movie beyond any message. So the message settles in on a different level because you have those barriers up because you're willing to enjoy this movie. And the ideas that it throws at you may be unexpected, but definitely warrant. And I feel like this movie really captured the magic of the original one, captured that same feeling that what if everything we're living is a lie? Going to the same coffee shop every day, going to the same work with the same people who say the same things, you know, it's all allegorical but it's a good way of representing that we're all in a sense stuck in our lives. Once we're set up to do something for the rest of our lives, we're probably going to continue doing it because we don't want to break from that comfort and because necessarily we don't prioritize freedom. Another question I think is important to bring up. One of the reasons I've theorized this, but I'm pretty sure it's true and I, I don't think it's too hard to disagree with. One of the reasons Matrix Resurrection didn't do as well as it could have was it, it was because it was um, competing against Disney's two of their biggest movies, Encanto and the Spider-Man movie, which was an extremely, well, extremely popular. I don't have to tell anyone how popular the new Spider-Man is. You see people lining up outside of the theater. And I think that begs the question, should filmmakers start releasing and making their films to accommodate big studios and to not be beaten out by big studios. I think there's already a certain pattern to how films are released, where big blockbusters are often released either in the buildup to the December like awards film month or they're released in the summer. And then often the more art house awards films are released in December prior to the Oscars, December through February. And so there's already a certain schedule for when films release, depending on their target audience and what they're trying to accomplish. In an ideal world, I don't think it has to be the smaller, not to call The Matrix Resurrections a small film, but the smaller, the more underdog films' job to step out of the way of the big studios. But I do think it's an unfortunate reality of how audiences react. Not everybody's going to go see every movie in theaters. They're just going to choose one. And so a lot of times, if you want, if you want to get that ticket, you got you to gotta work around what people are going to buy. I, I agree. Yeah, I think big corporations could get involved in the making of movies like the Matrix series, but I, I think it should be noted at least whether or not they can be responsible for their power, like in the movie and its significance. I think you could hand the series over to a big corporation, but if they're going to do it, they better do it reliably. Yeah. I, I agree, but it is shocking to me that despite the fact that 2021 was a great year for movies, having movies coming out the entire year that were all great, but 
it's the matrix it's one of the biggest like one of the most important movies in like the 21st century you know it's a part of our culture and it held in comparison to in particular the new spider-man movie which um honestly dominated theater and i think um with just all the massive hype around it and um, everything that is going on around that film that it beat out everything else that was released in december because that's all people really were going to the theater to see and it does beg the question should other studios accommodate and modify release dates to not be beaten out by bigger movies or should they just try to in a sense, not necessarily fight back, but challenge those movies with uh, movies of their own. For example, Matrix or Nightmare Alley or any of the movies that released in December. At this point, I think there's such a, there's, audiences have such a clear idea of what they're willing to go see in theaters. Obviously, No Way Home did incredibly well because it's a Marvel movie and it's a Marvel movie that's in a lot of ways, nostalgia baiting. And so it's going to drag a lot of, it's going to bring a lot of people to the theaters in a way that most movies won't. And so I think it, it does, it does mean that most movies, if they want to get people to the theater, have to cater to a specific audience and have to make sure they just have to step out of the way for big movies like No Way Home. Uh, because most, most general audiences only are going to go see those big movies that they're familiar with and aren't willing to try something new, like you mentioned Nightmare Alley. The general audience isn't going to go see Nightmare Alley. So Nightmare Alley's best shot is to, one, cater to an audience that's more like, likely to see it. And I think, two, uh, adjust their release date to the best possible time for them to get the screenings of anyone who does choose to go to the theater. You know, it, it, that brings up a point. I think people just don't go to a movie anymore and look at what's on the screen and then just pick whatever or just pick what sounds the most interesting or has the best poster, but it's more of a Again, like audiences know at this point what they're willing to see. But I think it is kind of sad that filmmakers have to go accommodating uh, big studios. That's like comparing some indie games to uh, EA or like whatever, you know. I don't think to worry about, about your movie being overshadowed and beaten by other Disney or Marvel movies if your movie is a cult classic. How many times have you been able to say that about a Disney movie, that it's a cult classic? Exactly. You know what? You're right about that. <laughs> I don't think any uh, Disney film is a cult classic, except Treasure Island. But uh, that's another discussion for another day. It's just, it's more the question of a film like a cult classic is, by its very definition, it's a film that takes a number of years to gather a following. Upon release, it's not going to get that following but so something like the big lebowski for instance which is a quite the cult classic has taken 15 10 15 years for it to become a cult classic so for these more independent films it's not a question of whether they'll continue to get made because they will studios like netflix will pick them up it's just a matter of will they continue to be screened in theaters or will only films will the only theaters that exist be you know the regals that only show marvel movies that's what it comes down to it is a scary thought, indeed, to think that uh, movies are going more towards the streaming service. And these movies that are coming out, not doing too well this year, they may become cult classics. But I guess that's for not necessarily us right now, but for the people of the future to 
uh, whether or not a movie is good enough to be remembered. One last question. I know I already kind of brought this up, but was the denial of nostalgic satisfaction more frustrating than it was effective? Like, for example, taking away the green tent and the cool trench coats and, in particular, Neo's absolute power and his ability to just be an unbridled badass. Do you think the intentional holding back on those things that we so desperately wanted was more effective? Or was it just frustrating? I think for a lot of people, it was very frustrating. I think that's a big part of why there's so many reviews is because, like we mentioned No Way Home earlier, No Way Home is another nostalgia-heavy movie, but that's a movie that plays into our expectations of nostalgia. It gives us what we want. It's very rewarding, whereas The Matrix isn't. And so if you have that mindset that that's what it's going to do, you're going to dislike it. But part of the reason I really liked the new Matrix movie is because it chose to not play into what we expected it to be. And it chose instead to be its own unique and original thing. That made it its own story. It made it its own continuation. And in a way, it's, that's what made it a worthy sequel to the original Matrix, not that it would just be another nostalgia bait movie. I think, uh, like you were like was saying about um, No Way Home, I'm sure if you get you guys seen the film and are aware of how kind of nostalgia baity it was and just giving the audiences things they weren't expecting, but what they already established that they wanted. And I think they kind of went the easy way out. For me, what was the most frustrating is the fact that I kind of wanted to see, well, I think they built up the expectation was they, they made Keanu Reeves look like John Wick. That's just undeniable. So you're expecting him to get into some unadulterated coolness sliding on top of cars and like battling everyone and to an extent he did do that but the power was shifted over in a sense to trinity and trinity became the stronger one and it's not what i think anyone expected but i believe it was exactly what we needed and exactly what the story needed yeah no, I completely agree. I think part of why so many people liked it, but also I think what makes it a good sequel is that it chose to completely flip our expectations on their head. Like you said, making Trinity the main character. It, it, we didn't need another film about Neo, but having this film be reoriented to, by the end you realize it isn't about Neo and it's about Trinity, I think is one, it flips our expectations, but it also keeps the film feeling new and in a way necessary maybe not necessarily that i think Trinity was the main character per se but there's determined screenwriting known as the main character the protagonist the main character and the hero it's not too often used but for example moana moana was the main character and maui was the hero yeah that's a that's a great point and i think it, was, it flipped our expectations on their head and gave us something not only that we weren't expecting, but probably that they thought we didn't want. But they did it anyways. And I thought the bravery of that is astonishing. I'm not used to seeing anything, well, so bold. Yeah, that was the main thing I loved about this movie is that it really didn't care about what anyone else thought about it. It was just about Lana making the Matrix sequel that she wanted to make. Yes, I, I was going into the theater expecting to be severely disappointed, but my, I was blown away. I was like, it made me feel things. And for a movie to actually make me feel something, that's pretty uncommon these days. Especially a big blockbuster. One last thing, wrap it up. 
Any last thoughts? Well, a lot of people attribute this movie to the uh, the phrase based and red-pilled. So in response to that, I would like to say, you can be cringe without being based, but you cannot be based without also being cringe. Agree, because once you acknowledge that you're cringe, you are free. You've been listening to Film Club, a production of Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Kendrick Whiteman. The roundtable was edited by Ormond Alois. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people, whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including Alaska State Council on the Arts. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like at me. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And if you are a youth ages 13 to 24 who loves movies and is interested in being part of our film club, go to alaskateenmedia.org join to find out more. Or you can email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Yuli Zhang. Thanks for listening.